Okay, we're going to start here by introducing the fact that we actually are called to passion in our daily walk with Christ and in our ministry. You see, a lot of people think that passion is optional or passion is type A versus type B personality. As a matter of fact, when I first had the idea to do this seminar, it was, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago. I've been doing it every year. One of my friends at the time sat at the lunch table and a lot of people were very excited about it. And this one lady said to me, I don't think you should even have a seminar called The Passion Factor. She said, passion is not something that you can learn. You're born with it or you aren't. And from that point on, always wanting to take a challenge, I thought this is definitely going to be a seminar. Oh, sure. A handout? Sure. Because I know for a fact that we can have passion because Jesus has called us to it. And I'm going to use, you may have heard this illustration before, of the chicken and the pig for my example. Farmer John had a chicken and he had a pig. And they were both very thankful for the great life that they'd had at the farm. And they got together and they thought, how can we thank Farmer John for all that he has done to us? for us and they started talking and the chicken said I've got it I have a wonderful idea this is what we'll do we'll get up early on Saturday morning and we'll make farmer John a big bacon and egg breakfast and the pig looked at the chicken and said I don't think so that's great for you but not so great for me because all the chicken has to do is lay the eggs And the pig has to give his life. I love that analogy because in our walk with Jesus Christ and in our ministry as school teachers, we are called to be the bacon. You know, a lot of us want to walk around and think that we can lay our eggs of Christian education ministry here and there, but that is not effective. When God calls people, he calls them to give everything to himself. And so that's what the passion factor is all about. And it's something that you can determine to do based on the scripture. For example, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross every day, and follow me. Now, we read this scripture and gloss right over it. But I want you to go back in time and take this in context with me. Now, when Jesus was walking the earth and said this to his disciples, he had not yet died on the cross, right? And so the cross back then was not some pretty little necklace that people wore. The cross was not an emblem that they put in their churches. At the time that Jesus said this, the only thing his disciples knew about a cross is it is a cruel form of Roman execution. That's all they knew. And so I can just imagine they're standing there with Jesus, their leader, and he says, if you want to come after me, take up a cross and follow me. And they were probably like, what is he talking about? He's talking about dying. And you know what? He really is. That's exactly what he means. In Galatians 2.20, Paul tells us that we have to be, we have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. So this is actually a matter of life and death. Now, not physical death all the time, but it's a matter of our our giving of our emotions and our spirits completely to Jesus Christ. He calls for nothing less. 
And if you're like me, I am frustrated with what I see in our young people as a high school teacher. And I believe half the reason is they are not being modeled what Christianity really is. It's not a little part of our life. It's our whole life. It's everything. There's another scripture when Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He means you are to love me not just with your emotions, but the very essence of who you are. You're supposed to love me even with your intellect. And that's a challenge for us. We need to be investing our minds and our brains into the things of God. And how many, you know, I personally get convicted, how many hours a day might we be wasting doing things that are not expanding the kingdom of God and rather we're just so quick to entertain ourselves? Here's another one. We love to use this with the students. How many of you have ever used this in a classroom? (laughs) I love it. We're like, whatever you do, you should do it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. And we love to pound them over the head with that. I'd like to pound some school teachers over the head with that and say, when you're pulling into the parking lot in the morning and you haven't had your coffee yet and you're walking down the hallway, you are modeling the life of Jesus Christ. So we better wipe the scowl off our face We better hold our head up and we better interact with the students like we care what's happening to their soul, right? Because we too as teachers, whatever we do, we should be doing as unto the Lord and not for men. I'm not working for the school board of our Christian academy. I'm not working for my principal, really. Who am I working for? Jesus Christ. That's who I'm I'm, I'm every minute of the day. That's what it's supposed to be about. So, as I said before... If you really believe what the Bible says, you have to be the bacon, not the chicken laying the eggs. Christianity is not a part of your life. It's everything that you are. And when we're in front of our students on a daily basis, they should be able to look at us and see the essence of Jesus Christ. That's convicting, isn't it? I'm not just in the classroom to be the best math or biblical worldview teacher I can be. I'm in there to be Shelley Prindle, lover of Jesus Christ, modeling in every way a dedication to him. Now, I think you'll agree with me that in the world that we live in, mediocrity is one of Satan's greatest weapons. I personally believe it may be his biggest weapon. Mediocrity. Um, As Christians, we're not always under direct attack. It's not so much that Christians are completely turning their back on God. But I think what's even more dangerous is when Christian role models like us in the classroom stand up before students and we are mediocre in our walk with Jesus Christ. Very, very dangerous territory. Now, what do I mean by being mediocre? I came up with an acrostic for that. And I think mediocre could best be said... Maybe Jesus doesn't require wholehearted dedication right here and now. With the emphasis on right here and now, because if I ask you to raise your hand, how many of you believe Jesus requires wholehearted dedication? Right? But if I say, how many of you believe he requires it right here and now in this very second we're living, now that gets a little sketchy. Now, if you're like me, when I wake up in the morning, there are mornings, I'm I'm a morning person, by the way. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm kind of, I am type A. And I'm a morning person, and I drive these people wild. But crazy, I guess. I drive you crazy. But I get up in the morning, and one of the first thoughts that goes through my head is, 
I want to live this day for Jesus Christ. I want this to be a successful day in the Lord. So I'll say, God, help me to make today everything you want it to be. How many of you do that at times? Then, that same night, you lay your head on the pillow and you're like, I was a complete failure. My intentions were very good. My heart was in the right place. But at the end of the day, I was not what I intended to be. So what happened there? Moments crept in. That's what happened. You have to be passionate. Not, you know, it's, it's easy for me to get passionate when I'm teaching a class like this or when I'm in front of a church speaking. That's easy. Where it's hard to be passionate is in the coffee room in the morning, in the faculty lunchroom when everybody else is just complaining about the day and down in the dumps. Where you need to be passionate is in the everyday moments of life because that's what constitutes a day. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, I believe it is, says, Since we call on a father who judges men without respect of person, he's not partial to anybody, we should pass the time of our sojourning here with reverent fear. And the word for pass the time there in the Greek, there are two words for time in the Greek. Kairos, which means a big season, a moment, a celebration. And chronos, which means one second after the other. And so Peter says, you should live your life one second after the other in reverent fear, knowing these moments belong to God. And I'm not kidding you. So I walk around my school and my house. If I'm doing dishes, if I'm getting coffee in the morning, if I'm talking to a child about homework, if I'm at home preparing a a sermon, I'm thinking, I've got to do this in reverent fear of Jesus Christ. This is a serious moment. Do you understand? So, mediocrity is what gets us in the moments, not just the big times. Now, how do I know this is true? Because Jesus said that your mediocrity is shown in your deeds. Now, like I told you, nobody gets up in the morning and says, see the sunrise, I'd like to have a really mediocre day. I hope this is just a, you know, so-so day. Can't wait. Nobody does that. But your mediocrity happens in the deeds through the day in the moments of life. So we go to this wonderful scripture that, you know, we don't like to read all that often. But this was actually a scripture that Jesus, he was talking to Christians, to a church, and he said to the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, not hot, not cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And the word spit there, I like, you know, I teach teenagers a lot, so I like, it means vomit. You're like the vomit of Jesus when you are lukewarm. Now, what does that mean? Because it's easy to read a scripture like that and think, okay, I'm not supposed to be lukewarm. And we can keep that in some theoretical, intangible category, right? No, we can't. And so when I first decided to, actually a friend helped me come up with the idea for this seminar, it wasn't then. I was teaching a, a middle school chapel, middle high school chapel, and I wanted to speak to them about passion. And I prayed to God and I said, God, please help me to come up with a real tangible way to show these students what it means to be passionate for you in the moments of life. Because, they, you know, you read a scripture to this like them and say you can't be lukewarm, and they're like, oh, here we go again. 
And you know, the Holy Spirit, I believe, helped me write something that I refer to as the passion quiz. So I'm going to read you a series of questions and I'm going to trust God to take this to your heart. And it is not meant to be condemning whatsoever. I, in fact, myself take a couple questions of the passion quiz every morning that I get up. This never leaves my mind. And it's not meant to be condemning, but what I want you to let it do is let God speak to your heart and let's ask ourselves, where the rubber meets the road in the moments of life, are we really hot or cold or lukewarm for Jesus Christ, right? And I do want to tell you that if you, you know, the passion quiz questions are not in your handout, but I do have a website and I can give you information and I can email that to you if you want to email me or get onto the website and, and contact me through there. But here we go. So don't, try to, don't try to copy them down now, though. I'll give you the information to get them. I just want you to sit there. I'm going to read them rather slowly, bring them up on the screen and see what you think, okay? The passion quiz. Because this is the inventory of our level of passion in the real world. Number one, what is the last thing you talked to God about? And when did that conversation occur? What passage of Scripture did you commit to memory most recently? So I'm not talking about sitting down in the morning with your devotional book. But if this is the only tangible thing that we have from a supernatural God in our world, and if we say our life depends on this word, my question is, which passage, not which verse, which chapter, which passage did you commit to memory most recently? And you can't say, I'm not good at memorizing because we don't let the kids use that as an excuse, do we? No. What verse of God's word did you cling to yesterday? In other words, are we in God's word enough that on any given day there's one that's really circulating in our mind that God is pressing into our hearts? How many people will be in heaven and say to you, thank you, God used you to help get me here? At approximately what time today did you share an exciting thing about God with somebody else? I had at least three people come up to me yesterday and share an exciting shopping experience. But how many people do you share an exciting thing about God with? And what's most important, right? What is the first name of the last student you smiled at and asked, can I pray with you? What's the last thing you thanked God for with your voice out loud? What's the first and last name of a person you loved as much as yourself somehow today? When is the last time you smiled, literally smiled, at the thought of Jesus coming back? My Bible says distinctly in three places, including Hebrews 9.28, that Jesus is coming back to people who are waiting for him. Waiting for him. In other words, we are so close to him that we long for his return. Can you name three people who are growing in Jesus because you are a part of their lives? Not three people that are helping you maintain your spiritual life, but three people who are growing because you are in their life. When's the last time you were alone and said out loud, just because you wanted to, Jesus, I love you. 
That's supposed to make us think. How are we really living it out? What are the things that are consuming our thoughts and our actions during the course of the day? Because I just believe we're living in a culture where we've missed the boat with Christianity. Passion is possible. And that's the hard part. And here's the good part. It is possible to be passionate even if you're not a type A personality. How do I know? Because Jesus commanded us to be passionate. And would our God command something that is impossible for us? No. With God, all things are possible. So here's some scriptures, some more that let us know. He means business about this. Romans 12:11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never. It doesn't say, be pretty zealous, but if your car broke down yesterday, you're off the hook. It doesn't say, be pretty zealous, but if you have a headache... No big deal. It says never be lacking in zeal. And, and I always take time in the passion factor to say this only because I think some people look at me and they think, she's definitely type A. She's definitely wired. This is different for her. And I always want to make this point. Um, you know, everybody in the world has problems. Emotionally, spiritually, financially. We face problems, don't we? And one thing I want you to know about me is since the age of 13, I have been an insulin-dependent diabetic. I do 10, 12 blood tests a day, give myself four to six shots a day. I wake up in the morning, and the first thing I wake up to is a blood test that could dictate my mood and my life. And I face all kinds of medical issues because of that. So I don't want you to think that when I speak to you, I'm speaking insensitively. We all face things, don't we? You may not have a physical problem. You may. But we face things. But God's Word says, in terms of your spirit, never be lacking in zeal. No matter what's going on in your life. Then, I like when Jesus says in John 9, 4, as long as it's day, you have to do the work of Him who sent me. Because night is coming when no man can work. You know, when I walk into my classroom every day, I do not see students. I see souls. I look at students in terms of souls. Because... They are going to pass from this world into the next very soon. It may be sooner than we think. Amen? We are and they are. We don't know when night is going to happen and the age of grace is going to close. We only have so much time to work. And Jesus said, focus on that work. And then, one of my personal favorites. Oh, this is a great scripture. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now let's just stop there for a second and say, this is a wonderful place to say, thank you Jesus. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. I do not want God to be looking at Shelley Prindle. I want God to be looking at Jesus Christ when he looks at me. Jesus is our covering, isn't he? He's the Old Testament mercy seat. He covers over our sins. So our life is now hidden with Christ in God, the Bible says. And so, Paul said, when Christ... Now check this out. Little parenthetical phrase there. Who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Now Hebrews 9.28 says Jesus is only coming back to people who are waiting for Him. And Colossians 3 verse 4 says that the way that you're going to go to get to be with Jesus is if you can define your life by saying, Christ 
is my life. You know what little Johnny means when he says, soccer's my life, right? Or Susie says, Johnny's my life. We know what they mean. They are emotionally and time-wise consumed by that person or that thing. And what I'm saying is, can we stand here and sit in this room today and honestly look at Christ and say, Christ, you are my life. That's a commandment. And so it must be possible that we can define our lives by saying Jesus is everything. Okay. So because we know that we need more passion, because we know that passion must be possible, I took some time to look in uh, Funk and Wagnall's Webster's Dictionary and check out how do they define passion. And actually, the third definition I found in Funk and Wagnall's kind of got me like a little bit excited. I thought, man... Holy Spirit must have been with them that day. Okay? First definition, it's any intense, extreme, or overpowering emotion or feeling. Ah, that's a little wishy-washy because emotions can come and go, can't they? Ardent affection or love. And then definition number three caught my eye because of another favorite scripture I have. I read this and it said, a strong desire or affection for some object, cause, etc. And I thought, hmm... That's cool. That reminds me of Jesus. Jesus had a strong desire for a cause, and we can follow in his footsteps. Now, I know you've heard of the following verse, but we're going to think about it in a way maybe we've never thought about it before. Here's the strong desire Jesus had. The Bible says in Hebrews 12:2, "...let us fix our eyes on Jesus." the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, one thing that gets me a little bit excited about this is I teach a lot of biblical worldview and apologetics, and I'll give you this little extra tidbit. Has anybody ever heard of the teleological argument for God's existence. Teleology? It means there's design in the universe. And because we can see the design behind the universe, we know there must be a designer. And this is the season where one of the great things that the designer has done comes to life. Has anybody ever witnessed the monarch butterflies making their migration? Last year, I actually saw this happen. I was standing out in my parents' backyard with my little nephew, and I saw like four and five monarch butterflies way up above the rooftops flying really high in groups of four and five just continually for like over an hour, and they were all headed the same direction. And what amazes me is as I researched that, I found out they are all going to the same place down in Mexico. They're making a two to 3,000-mile trip And their grandparents didn't even do that trip. It was their great-grandparents that were the butterflies before them that made the trip. So they couldn't even talk to their grandma to say, how do you get there? They go there because God has designed them to make that trip. Tiny little delicate butterflies, two and 3,000 miles, nowhere to go in order to survive because God designed them to be able to do that. That's one of the teleological arguments for God's existence. But that word teleology simply means There's a design. There's a goal that's in mind for creation. That word perfecter, Jesus is not only the author of your faith, 
He is the designer and the goal maker of your faith. In other words, He will bring your life and make it to achieve the purposes it's supposed to achieve. Just like He guides the little butterfly to where it has to go to survive, He guides us as Christians and fulfills our lives. So the Bible saying here is, Jesus, when He was on that cross, He was fixing His eyes on something that enabled Him to endure the cross and scorn its shame. Now, we know that Jesus went through more physical, emotional, and spiritual stress than we could ever imagine, right? It wasn't just that He died on the cross because lots of people have died on crosses. It was that He was bearing the sin and darkness of the entire universe. So my question is this. As He's going through that from beginning to end, what was it that caused Him to be able to make it through to the end and to do what He had to do? Jesus had His eyes fixed on us. Right? How many of you believe that? Going across His vision on that cross was our faces. He knew He was dying to save us. We were His goal. We were His goal. And so when the Bible says we should fix our eyes on Him, that has a very special meaning because we know that Jesus on the cross, now now understand me on this, it wasn't that He didn't endure the suffering and the pain and the struggle. It was that He pushed it aside and made it less important than the goal. Right? He endured it. But somehow when He was on the cross, He was able to push that aside and say, that won't be my focus. The end result will be my focus and I will push these things aside. And that's exactly what He did. And He did it because He saw us, our salvation. And so what Hebrews 12.2 is telling us to do, in the same way, He is saying to us, what things must we push aside and make less important in order to have Jesus as our goal? You just invert the whole process. We were His goal. He has to be our goal. So on a daily basis, I know there are things that we have to push aside. Like I told you before, there are so many times if I wake up in the morning and my blood sugar is completely out of whack for no apparent reason, which happens a lot, I can feel physically very bad. But I cannot let that stop me from going into my classroom every day from going into a church to speak. I can't let that stop me from presenting Jesus Christ the way that He is in my heart. Right? And even though we face financial difficulties and it's hard, God is saying, can you push aside the temporary distractions, the suffering, the things that we go through to make it less important than Jesus Christ? For example, it's real easy after a day of teaching and you're tired to go home. And if you're like the students, you just want to veg out on the couch for a while. Just get away from me, everybody, and I'm just going to lay down for a while and watch some Andy Griffith reruns. That's what I like to watch. Okay? And, you know, God has convicted me so many times about that because I am physically tired sometimes at the end of the day. Are you? But, you know, the other day, 
I came home from school and I'm in full-time graduate school and I'm teaching full-time and I incorporated a ministry over the summer, so I'm just slightly busy. I came home from school and all I wanted to do is just I looked at my couch and I thought, I just want to lay on that couch. I haven't done that in so long. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Shelly, start pacing your house back and forth. My husband wasn't home. Just start pacing your house and pray. Pray for the upcoming ministry events. you got to pray. I did not want to do that. But you know, God rewards that. Suddenly, I was invigorated with an energy, and God answered prayers. And that's what He's calling us to do. These are the moments of life that we're talking about. Do you want to be a different teacher? Do you want to be a changed teacher? Do you want to walk into your classroom and people can sense God's presence in you? Push aside the temporary. We live in such comfort, such comfort in our society, don't we? that we don't understand how to push aside the temporary. But that's what God is saying, because Jesus is my goal. I can do it if I keep Jesus as my focus. Now, does this mean you become a little bit obsessive about Jesus? Absolutely. We should be. That's what we've been talking about through the whole seminar. Okay, so we got Funk and Wagnall's definition of passion and here's the definition that I would say is easy to remember here's how I define passion passion is seeing the bigger picture despite the daily grind of life now does everybody know what I mean by daily grind don't you love that word daily grind you can just feel what it is okay the daily grind is the having to get up in the morning throw the laundry in before you go to school you got to brush your teeth make sure your clothes are ironed are the kids fed do you have your lunch packed pay the bills you know daily grind okay passion is being able to focus on the bigger picture despite the daily grind of life that we have to live out and so therefore passion is just an adjustment of your vision It's just seeing past the ordinary. Here's how we get it. First of all, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 18, everything's based on Scripture. We always go to God's Word. Therefore, we don't lose heart because outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what we can see, but on what we can't see. For what we can see is temporary, and what we can't see is eternal. When is the last time you really tried to stare at the invisible? Because it's possible. Romans 1.20 says that creation makes the invisible things of God visible. And this verse is saying, I am supposed to fix my physical eyes on something that is invisible. And that's what gives you the edge and that's what makes the difference between a person living with passion and not having passion. Being able to fix your spirit eyes on things you cannot see. For example, in this room right now, I see a bunch of messy... This, this room to my, to my OCD personality is just driving me nuts. I see all these messy chairs, you know, and they're all turned. Okay, so in this room, we have this rather dull-looking room and we have X number of people sitting in it, okay? I don't want them to put that on the tape because this is a lovely room. We love being here. Um, but we're sitting in this room. We have a certain number of people in here. And, and what we could do is just look at the physical situation. I just want you to know that since I started teaching this, that's not what I'm looking at. I am actually 
looking at spiritual things that are taking place. And while we've been sitting here, and I think some of you have felt the same thing, I have actually sensed God's Holy Spirit talking to people while we're in here. Because He is, is He not? It's invisible, but it gets me excited. Some of you, I can tell, are understanding what I'm saying. Because it's God's Holy Spirit talking to both of us. He is doing invisible things. We have to focus on what cannot be seen. You don't walk into your classroom and just look at it as another day with substandard equipment and kind of not so good looking kids in your room because they're at that odd age, you know? You're seeing past those things. Okay, for example, I have a student I'm thinking of when I put that up there and you probably all do too. Here you have little Mr. So-and-so in your class, okay? Now this is the guy that tries to push the dress code whenever possible. If he isn't in school and you see him all out at Walmart, he's got the crazy hair, the crazy clothes, a total rebellious child. He is always under your skin. He's pushing every rule. You know who I'm talking about? This kid gets on your nerves in the flesh. And what God is calling us to do is look past the crazy hair, the crazy clothes, the crazy actions, And he's saying, you have got to start looking at that child with eternal vision and see past all that stuff to his soul. Because guaranteed, little Mr. So-and-so is pushing the limits because there is a problem in his soul. And we ought to feel sorry for that and we ought to want to fix that. But if I can never as a teacher get past the aggravation that he brings me and the disgust that he brings me, I will never reach his soul. So God says, put on the kind of vision that can get past all that and go for it. Deal with him as a human being with a soul. Then you have those two girls. This is like more for elementary teachers, I guess. But I hear like in the elementary grades, you can get some girls that can really go at it with each other. You know, the cat fights. Isn't that like upper elementary, middle school? Oh, yeah, they're just ripping each other to shreds. You've got to stop looking at those students and their behaviors and start understanding that there's a reason that she is causing so much trouble in your classroom. She is in turmoil and she needs to have a special kind of encounter with God's Holy Spirit. Now, here's another good one. I remember when I first started teaching at the first Christian school I was at, they had red carpeting in the high school and pink lockers for everybody. Ooh, this was nasty stuff. And I remember some mornings I would walk up onto that third floor with my cup of coffee and I would think, I cannot believe this place. This is unbelievable. And some of the classrooms were pretty, you know, not looking too good. You know what God calls us to do? He says, you don't walk down the hallway of your school and look around at the paint job that needs to be done and how bad things are. You should be putting on eternal vision And look at your school and your classroom as a place where the Holy Spirit lives and moves to change people. I'm not particularly excited about the bland decor of this room. But when I walked into this room, I wasn't looking at that. I was thinking the Holy Spirit's going to be in this room in about 20 minutes with us. And He is going to change people eternally. And that's the kind of vision we need to have. You might say to me, how do you get that vision? Wear your Peter glasses. Okay? I'm going to introduce you to something called Peter glasses. 
named after Peter, the apostle. Okay, I love Peter. He's my favorite. He reminds me of myself. He was up and down. Do you guys realize that? Do you ever feel like Peter? Up one day, down the next, tried hard, failed. Okay, and you're like, can God ever use me? Peter was a very volatile disciple. You all remember him. He's the one that was the first to stand up and say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and then deny Jesus to the little girl, you know. Walk out on the water, sink. Okay, that's just Peter. He denied Jesus, but you know, he went on to preach the first great sermon of the church. Under his ministry, more than 3,000 people got saved. And Peter ended up being persecuted for Jesus' sake. And tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down because he told the people who crucified him, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord. Hang me upside down and crucify me. Now, if you don't think there's hope for your life because you feel up and down and not passionate all the time, there's hope for your life because look what happened to Peter. Now, the thing that's neat to do with Peter, maybe you could do this for a little Bible study sometime, Read about Peter in the Gospels, and then you can identify with them. Then after that, when you want to get convicted and inspired, go read First and Second Peter. It's like a different guy. He's totally changed. Totally. He is so, he is so inspiring in First and Second Peter. And you're like, is this the same guy that denied Jesus Christ? And it will give you so much hope in your spirit that you can be who you're supposed to be. Now, what happened to Peter? I think that Jesus really got a hold of Peter's heart in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this is just an educated guess on my part. I don't know this for sure. But I know that Jesus did instruct Peter specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane, even though all three of the inner circle were there, Peter, James, and John. Jesus particularly spoke to Peter. And so, if you don't mind, I'm going to take you back there for a minute. I want to read the passage from the Garden of Gethsemane, and I want you to see something that's absolutely life-changing that Jesus said to this man, okay? Matthew 26. Jesus went with his disciples. Now, you remember, Jesus knows what's coming, and he's told his disciples it's going to happen, and they don't believe him. goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said to his three closest friends, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter, and notice how Peter's pointed out here, and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So, you like say to your three closest friends, and you're not even the son of God, you know what I mean? You say to your three closest friends, I am so troubled, I feel like I am going to die. I think this is going to overtake me and I'm literally going to die. And your friends fall asleep. That's what happens here. This is unbelievable stuff. Your three closest friends. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he says, Could you men not even keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter, See, he said it to all of them, but it's as if his eyes focused in on one of them. And he said, couldn't you, know, couldn't you guys keep watching me for an hour? But he's looking directly at Peter. And then he says to Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. I love that phrase. 
Listen to that phrase. The spirit is going to be willing, but the body is going to be weak. If you ever feel like your flesh and your body is not wanting to do what it should do for Jesus, that's natural. That's the natural man. But Jesus said the spirit has got to be willing and that's what's got to overtake it. So he went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it's not possible, then may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them. He went away once more and he prayed the same time, a third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and he said, now catch this, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So in this same moment, Jesus says the hour is near. It's about to end. It's going to happen now. Eternity was about to be changed because what followed this scene? The arrest the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. God invaded the space-time continuum, came to this earth, died and rose again for us. That was the moment that was about to take place when Jesus' three closest friends fell asleep on him. What's the parallel? Well, if you can't figure it out already, here's the parallel. Jesus came the first time into this world and invaded the space-time realm to pay the price for our sin. He rose from the grave and left that we might have a living hope that we will rise to. Right? And He's coming a second time to invade the space-time realm and take us to the place He's prepared for us. Amen and hallelujah. Okay? Can't wait for that day, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, when He came the first time, and was about to change eternity within hours and days, his disciples were sleeping because they were tired. He's about to come back the second time. His disciples are sleeping because our bodies are weary and tired. We are so consumed with the things of this life that we can't even see through to the magnitude of what is happening. And the only person rejoicing about it is Satan himself who is laughing his head off as we go into the room every day thinking it's just another day of teaching. I've got to put in my time. Satan is laughing because what he wants you to think is in your classroom sit 25 students whose souls could be damned to hell if you don't intervene and get serious about your life with me. Is that amazing or what? And I'm to the point now where I don't even just think it about kids. I think it about every person that crosses my path. The other faculty members, everyone in my life. I'm thinking eternity is about to be changed. Something huge is about to happen. Is Jesus going to come back to the earth? Yeah. And just because He hasn't come back yet doesn't mean that He's not going to come back soon. Here's the deal. The disciples... We're looking at the temporary discomfort in their lives and Jesus wanted them to look through to the eternal moment that was about to happen. It wasn't evident to them right then, but eternity was being changed. It isn't evident to us right now, but eternity is about to be changed again. And I'll share with you, I think I have a minute to to put this extra in here. One time when I was doing a middle school leadership conference, Dr. Hedgetist asked me to get up and give the closing remarks after I did the keynote speech at the end of the day. And he handed me a microphone 
and said, if you could just give a few closing remarks. And so I took the microphone from him. There's all these middle school students there and their teachers. Took the microphone, set it down. Nobody was talking, you know. Got a pillow, put it down right here in the middle of the floor. Got down on my head. Mounted up and did a headstand. And stayed on my head for like a minute and a half solid. And Dr. Hedges and all the kids, everybody in the room was kind of like, what is going on here? At first you couldn't hear anybody doing anything and then you started to hear a little bit of laughter because they're like, okay, we asked her to give the closing remarks. She's standing on her head. Nobody knows what to do. It's very uncomfortable. Then I got down off of my head and I stood back up and I took the microphone and this is all I said. You ready? I said, I bet you've never had a keynote speaker stand on their head before to give the closing remarks. They were like, no. I said, I bet you never had any speaker do that to you before. No, Mrs. Prendle. And I said, just because something hasn't happened before doesn't mean it's not suddenly going to take place. Just because we feel like today we'll go on and we'll have dinner and we'll get up tomorrow and brush our teeth and life will cycle on, just because Jesus hasn't broke back through the time-space continuum to take us back, doesn't mean he's not about to do it. Right? And that's the way you and I have got to be living and teaching in our classroom. I'm going to get to, in, in, in about three minutes here, I'm going to get to a very practical outline of a series of things, how you can implement this on a daily basis. But before I do, in light of what I just said to you, you've got to remember this. Peter Glasses tell you, it's not about now, it's about eternity. It's not about what you can see. It's about what you cannot see. Peter, my favorite apostle, wrote the book of Second Peter. And Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 14 are amazing. Okay? And I'm going to share those with you right now. What I want you to do is instead of like thinking about it as instruction or something, I just want you to do what you did during the Passion Quiz. Kind of sit back and take this in and hear the heart of Peter because he's the guy that kept failing Jesus, remember? He's the guy that Jesus got a hold of and said, Peter, you are going to want to be tired, but you have got to remember, I'm about doing something eternal here. This matters what's going on. You've got to get some passion in you. You've got to let the Spirit overtake your body. And so I tell you, Peter really did change after that experience. I mean, the, all the disciples did. But Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 13. Listen to what he says, because what I just told you about Jesus coming back, he says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they'll say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything continues to go on as it did since the beginning. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By those same waters, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, but He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Now, is this a guy who had perspective or what? Do you hear... You know, I think sometimes as Christians, especially adult Christians, we get so used to hearing the same things. That should hit you like a brick. We don't, the Bible is not just about these little happy little things to make me feel better. Here's the bottom line. Jesus Christ is coming back. And nothing you can invest other than in his kingdom matters one bit. That's good, isn't it? Okay? You know, I tell my students, it's like if you were a newlywed and somebody showed you a beautiful mansion and said, I can get you a real cheap rental on this mansion. I can get you a real cheap mortgage. But the only glitch is, in exactly three weeks, the entire thing is going to burn to the ground. Do you want to invest your money in it? And you can't buy insurance on it, by the way. No, you wouldn't do that then why in the world do we as Christians waste so much time making money, watching television, going shopping, indulging ourselves in things that do not matter when Jesus said the whole thing is going to be destroyed and the only thing that survives is the kingdom of God. The earth is going to be remade by fire. And only thing that matters is the eternal things that you have invested in. That is perspective. We don't need a bunch of self-help seminars and all these books that the Christian bookstore has to offer. Do you know what we need? We need to get back to the Word of God. The simple truths give us the passion that we need. I think it was Chuck Swindoll once. I was listening to the radio. And he said, there are only two things in this world right now that are going to survive into eternity. And that is people... And the Word of God. Invest yourself in those two things. That's the only thing that matters. Now, how do we live out this passion on an everyday basis? I'm glad you asked. Here's some examples. And again, if you want these, get my information up here. You can get them. I'll email them to you. Put them on the website, something. Because I just want you to enjoy them. Don't try to write them down. Think about this. Watch this. Okay, passion in the real world. Here we go. While I'm grading papers, my favorite job, do I feel aggravated from the rush and the number of papers that I have to grade or do I see the value of the soul that will be saddened or encouraged by my response? See, I can look at, I teach math and I teach Bible. I can look at grading my math papers as just another job I have to do to earn my paycheck. Or I can see in my mind's eye the soul of the student who's about to get that C-minus test back. And I can take time with my little pen to write down an encouragement to her because I know she's been trying and it's difficult. Do you know how many times I have found out that one little comment on a paper 
meant the world to somebody's kid. I've had parents come up to me years later and said, you changed my daughter's life. She holds on to this paper. It is unbelievable what we can do in the eternal realm if we'll let the Holy Spirit show us and take time to do it. When walking down the hallway, does my frown reflect my lower than average pay and my feelings of being unappreciated? Now, on any given day, do you reflect on your lower than average pay? I know I do sometimes. And do you ever feel unappreciated? Here's the thing. We can wear that feeling on our face as we're walking down the hallway. And when we do, you know what our students see? Mrs. Prindle's just in this to make a paycheck. That's all she really cares about. You know? That's what they see. Or, does my smile show the students that I believe I have a true inheritance in heaven and I'm building treasure there every day? Now, I'm not trying to be corny. I hope you guys understand. I mean this. When you walk into that classroom, you may not be making a lot of money, but you are building eternal treasures. As students enter my room, do I keep my head down and ignore them because it's been a long day? They're all in a bad mood. I'm in a bad mood. Or the question is, do I look them in the eyes and take time to talk to them because my sacrificial love for them proves Jesus is alive in their world? While in the lunchroom, do I gossip and enter into complaining conversation? This is the killer. The teacher lunchroom is probably the most dangerous place. Maybe not the most dangerous. All kidding aside, one of the most dangerous places for Christian to be. There is so much complaining, so much ungrateful attitude towards God and who we are supposed to be that goes on when we all get together and like gripe about all our common headaches. Do you agree with me? Am I the only one who feels that way? You can change your lunchroom. Some days what I'll even do, and they know it because they're in my lunchroom, some days I'll even go so far, but believe it or not, in a Christian school, I, as a Christian school teacher, will bring my Bible to lunch. Whew, that's weird. In the hopes that maybe we can get a conversation going about the Bible. It doesn't always work, but I try sometimes, okay? Or do we recognize in our conversation that our school is a lighthouse of God's salvation and God's hope despite all of its shortcomings. When teaching the same math problems for what seems like the hundredth time, Mrs. Prindle, I still don't get that. Do you appear rushed and aggravated? Or do you in patience and joy recognize that your demeanor in that moment can cause a student to feel they can approach you with a spiritual crisis tomorrow? I had a girl, she was going through family problems, she had a lot of issues. She would nag me and bug me and I was as patient as I could be. Sometimes I thought I was going to lose it. I tried every time to act like I had the time to speak to her. I did my best that I could do. And I'll never forget the day she walked through my door at lunch and she was at the end of a rope. I mean, this girl was about to give up with the Lord and really rebel. But because of patience in the small moments, she came to me in the big moment. You see that? 
If a student thinks that they aggravate you because they ask you about the Pythagorean theorem three times in a row, you better bet they are not going to ask you about their soul because that's a big issue. When asking the secretary for supplies, do I have an impersonal and ungrateful attitude or does my kindness reflect God's gentleness in her life? I think the school secretary should be the one who judges whether we are living for Jesus Christ or not. The school secretary and a hidden camera in the lunchroom. Okay, those are the two places. Now here's one. When I'm home in the evening, do I waste hours watching television? Hey, there's nothing inherently sinful about Andy Griffith reruns. But if I'm watching too many of them when God tells me to be doing something else, or do I fervently pray for my students and act out my belief in their souls, my God, heaven, and hell? In the conclusion, all I want to remind you to do, you've got to keep your eternal vision. Mediocrity creeps up in the moments. It's not the big things. You've got to put on your Peter glasses. And remember, Jesus says, Push aside what's temporary and keep your eyes focused on me. I'm the goal. This world's passing away. Only the kingdom of God survives. Lord Jesus, we come before you and I pray that everything that we have learned in this seminar we would be able to put into practice out of our love for you. I pray that those of us who are here would go out as an army for you and change the classrooms and the schools that we work in to be different, to be passionate the way you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.